0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is God's word.
1: We've been looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus teaches us about God as Savior. Here's Moses. He's been sent by God. And he goes to Pharaoh in Egypt. And God tells him to say, Let my people go, that they may worship me in the desert. And Pharaoh, now this is the most powerful man... In the world today, the most powerful empire in the world today, he asks a very fair question. He says, why? He says, who is Lord that I should obey him? And he's not doing that because he's an atheist. He's doing that because he's got many gods. He's got his own gods. He asked, what's so unique about your God? And so as an answer, God sends the 10 plagues. Last week, we learned about nine of those 10 plagues. That was God's response to that question. What's so unique about your God? But really, there's no better answer. There's no better answer to this question than this passage, because for the Jews, because for the Jews, the Passover meal, and for Christians, which is we have a revised version of that Passover meal in the Lord's Supper, in in our Communion, this is the central act of the identity of God's people. This is the central act of worship for God's people. So Pharaoh asks, "Why? What makes?" Why should I listen? What makes your God so special? And here's the answer. At the center, we have a God that is so wise, so mighty, so loving, that he became weak, he became helpless, he died, he became a sacrifice. Now why? There are three points today. What is the sacrifice? It's a lamb. Why was it important? The history. And lastly, how do we apply it? The application. The lamb, the history, the application. Or what is it? What is the sacrifice? Why is it important? How do we apply it? First, what is it? What is the sacrifice? It's a lamb. God calls Pharaoh. This is the greater king calling on a lesser king, even though he was the most powerful king in the world at the time, and he says, let my people go. Let my people go that they may worship me in the desert. And Pharaoh refuses, and the plagues come. And this is the last of the plagues. Now what is it? In verse 12, God says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. And then he says in verse 23, just a little bit later, Moses is speaking with Israel about the Passover, and he says, the Lord will not permit the destroyer to enter into your houses and strike you down. Now, last week, we learned that when you disobey the law of God, it violates your design. Disobeying the law violates the design that he has created you to be. And as a result, there's a corrosion of the body. There's a corrosion of community. There's a corrosion of the soul. And it corrodes all the way into chaos and darkness. We talked about this last week. That's the ninth plague, darkness. But when God says that night, a destroyer will come. The destroyer will come. What he's saying is on one night, in one place, my justice is coming. It's coming. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be preliminary. It's going to be provisional. But it's going to be devastating. What God is saying here is, I am about to unleash the most unstoppable force in the universe, the destroyer. And he's going to pass through the greatest military power in the world to date, the greatest political power in the world to date, the world has ever seen. And I'm going to go through it with ease. I'm just going to pass through with ease, without any resistance. It's going to be that easy. I'm going to do it at will. But there's only going to be one thing that can protect you. And what is that thing? He says, a lamb. A lamb can protect you. Oh, lamb, what? Now, if you read verses 1 to 13, the first 13 uh, verses of this text, we see the instructions, very elaborate instructions as to how, who you eat with, how it's supposed to be prepared, how do you prep the meal and what you do with the blood as you pour it onto the doorposts, and how you're supposed to stay in the house together that night. Mainly what God is saying here is, I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to eat it with your family or your neighbor. I want you to put the blood on the doorposts, and then I want you to dispose it properly. That's the Passover. That's really the Passover. That's what it is. Now, if you think about it, that's God saying, Your strength isn't enough. Your intelligence isn't enough. Your power isn't enough. Even the magnitude of your faith is not enough. Your wealth isn't enough. Your cultural upbringing is not enough to be able to stop what I'm about to bring. The only way that you can be saved is through this weak, insignificant little lamb. That's the only way. Something outside of yourself and not something big and strong, this little lamb that must be killed. Now, if you think about it as a a postmoderner, a person in modern times, that's almost insulting. But that's what it is. The sacrifice that saves is a lamb, a weak, helpless victim. Now, second point, why is that important? Why is it important? You need to understand the greater, why the lamb? You need to understand the greater biblical context of this lamb, the background story behind it. First, if you go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, you have Abraham and Isaac. Now, the story of Abraham and Isaac goes like this. Abraham, who's been wanting a son for decades, finally has a son, and he loves this son, and he's doting on this son, Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 22, God, who really promised to redeem the entire world through this son of of Abraham, he speaks to Abraham and he says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham, the son that he's been waiting for for decades, he's devastated. He's anguishing over this. And if you read through this text, there's lots of clues to show you the anguish of Abraham. But the question is, why is he anguishing? Why is he suffering? Now, most people, even some very brilliant liberal scholars will say this. They say, because what a horrible God. He gives something that Abraham has waited for for so long, and now he's going to take it away from him. What a horrible command. What a horrible God. You know, that's, that's why. That's why Abraham's anguishing. Because God has taken away the thing that he loves the most. And the answer is, not at all. No. If you believe that, you don't really know Abraham's story. You don't really understand Abraham's culture. So I have to explain to you this culture. And that's going to bring us all the way fast forward to what we're learning about today. Here's the context. Ancient cultures, they don't press for individual reputation, individual stature, individual prosperity or success or wealth the way we do today. Today's today's culture, it's all about self-discovery. It's all about pressing for status, pressing for individual buildup of reputation, the promotion, the salary, the comparisons individually one to another. That's today's culture. But the ancient culture worked hard for what? The advancement of their family, the advancement of their clan, so they were willing to sacrifice, every person in the ancient times was willing to sacrifice their individual success for the success of their tribe, the success of their family. The family was everything to them. If a member of your family, if you had a large family back then, if a member of your family was shamed, if a member of your family failed, if he committed a crime, if he did something incredibly shameful, the entire family was shamed. It was as if the entire family committed that crime. The family was everything. In other words, that person who committed that crime, that person who was shamed, their guilt and their shame transferred over to everybody else in that family. We call that imputation. It was imputed to everybody. Now we don't say that. We, we don't say. Uh, uh, we don't see it that way at first. You know, we say in our modern times, oh, we are so much more advanced than that. We don't see it that way at first. But because we say, gosh, if somebody in my family acted shamefully or committed a crime, that's on them. That's them. That's not me. That has no bearing nor reflection on me. See, it to not say that. It's easy to say that when you're young. But as you get older, one of the startling things that you begin to realize, it's almost disturbing, is that you are much more influenced much more almost a product of your community and your family than you actually want, need, or first thought or imagined. Uh, Whatever you are, whoever you are today, good or bad, it's not just attributed completely to you. Now, obviously, you are absolutely responsible. You are a product of your own choices, your own decisions, but... Really, if you think about it, who you are, what you are, it's not wholly attributable, greatly influenced by your community, your, the people around you, your family in particular. You realize this. First of all, begin with your genes, your looks, your intelligence. It's not something that you earned. You inherited that. You're much more a product in that sense Much more a product of your family than you want to believe. But secondly, your privileges or lack of privileges around you. And that's just your upbringing. What they did, what your family did or did not do with you. Now, again, you are absolutely responsible for your life. You are absolutely responsible for your actions. But your privileges, lack thereof, it's not attributable to you. Right? You were just born into that. So whatever you are, good or bad, right, uh, is largely influenced by what your family did or did not do with you. Now, if you don't agree with that, you've got to read Malcolm Gladwell. You've got to read the book, The Outliers. It shares a lot about the influence of legacy, the influence of family and culture around you. For instance, after Sandy Hook, after that tragedy that took place in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, the news, the newsmen, all the way in the newsroom, and the, and the journalists, what did they focus on? Beyond the individual, they focused on his family. They focused on his upbringing. They wanted to understand his background, to get a picture, a composite of this individual. After Columbine, what happened in Colorado, after that tragedy, one of the first, if not the first of its kind, all the news and the journalism, even the political pundits, what did they focus on? They focused on the family. They focused on the upbringing of of, of those children. They said there's this responsibility. Either it's active for what they did or passive in their neglect at the least. There is some sense of moral responsibility that the entire family has to assume to some degree. In other words, whether you want to believe it or not, every one of us to some degree, every one of us, to some degree, understands the transfer of guilt from one member of the family to another. That's how everybody else, even today, feels. If you see it in the news, See, read it in, a journal, in, in, in the journalist columns, that's what you see, that's how people respond. Now, we today, we have an unbalanced view of the influence of culture in our lives, the influence of family in our lives, but the ancient cultures, they did not. They had a much more balanced view of family and individual responsibility And that's why it brings us to this concept of the firstborn. You have this firstborn. They didn't have banks back then. So what do you do with your money? What do you do with your wealth? What do you do with the livestock and the people around you, the land that you have? All of the wealth was centralized around the firstborn son. The firstborn son had all the wealth because they had no banks. So they centralized it around one person that they would completely dedicate and devote all of their wealth and income to. And that person bore the responsibility to distribute that wealth to the rest of the members of the family as they had needs. And so God sends this message throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the earlier books of the Old Testament. God sends this message. He says, every firstborn is mine unless you redeem it. So every year, the family would put up a certain amount of of money, let's say, because there was a redemption price for every firstborn child in every family. All the hopes in the family, all the wealth in the family, all the success in the family was concentrated, centralized on the firstborn son. And God basically is essentially saying there's this debt that you owe over every family on the face of this earth. Every family owes a debt. And because the firstborn, the wealth of the family was represented in the firstborn, so was the debt. The sin of the family. The firstborn was also liable and responsible for the sin. All the wealth was concentrated on the firstborn. All the sin was concentrated on the firstborn, unless you redeemed it. So when God says to Abraham, I want you to offer up your firstborn son as an offering to me, it made sense to Abraham. Abraham didn't say, what? I don't understand that. He didn't look at God and say, that's evil. How can you do that? He understood. Abraham understood. God wasn't asking Abraham, I want you to kill your son. He he says, I want you to offer up your son. In other words, God was calling in his debt. And Abraham understood then that to be redeemed, his son had to die. It was God's right. Every firstborn son belonged to him. Isaac had to die for the sins of Abraham and his his generation. Of course, it made sense. And so, yes, Abraham struggled. And yes, it, it was incredibly, there's a tremendous amount of anguish. There was this long journey in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham takes up this mountain with his son. But he never questioned God. Not once did he question God. Now, he did struggle. What did he struggle with? What Abraham would have struggled with is this. He understood by grace alone, God promised to redeem the world through Isaac. By grace alone. So this sacrifice satisfies God's justice. God is a just God. Evil will come to an end, injustice will one day don't be done away with. And in order to do that, there had to have been a sacrifice. Yes, sacrificing Abraham, sacrificing Isaac, satisfies justice but how does it satisfy grace? He knew God to be a gracious God. God said, by grace alone. How does it satisfy grace? This was the struggle. If you see in Genesis chapter 22, verses seven to eight, Abraham basically said, if God is just, you're going to be the sacrifice for the world, Isaac. But I do hope that God will provide a lamb so that my lamb won't die. I hope that God will provide something to substitute for my son, so that my son won't die. Now, people have all sorts of problems with the notion, number one, beyond the narrative itself. People have lots of problems with the notion that, wait a second, you're telling me that I need to be saved? You're telling me that I have this debt of sin as well? That the wrath of God is on me? I really don't like to believe that. Let me unpack this for you a little bit. Very very almost casually, let me unpack this a little bit. We think that it's extreme to say that everybody is sinner is a sinner. That everybody has a sin debt to God. Because we say, you know, if God is so loving, why can't he just forgive everybody? Why can't he just forgive? And, Abra- and the answer is he can forgive but not without a payment. Now think about this. Because it's become very real we were created in God's image. When so, so in many ways, the way we're designed is a reflection, a broken reflection, but a reflection of the image of God. Think about when somebody, think about right now, everybody think about a friend that you have, a very, very intimately close friend. The, the more intimate, the better. When that person wrongs you, when that person betrays you, if that person wrongs you, how do you feel? they owe you a debt. You feel like they owe you something. There's this tremendous pain. They hurt you. And so this debt is really proportional to the amount that they've wronged you. If you've been wronged greatly by them, they owe you a tremendous debt. And you carry that as a burden of hurt, a burden of pain, a burden of anguish. Now think about it. Do you think it's because you have high standards? It's not because you have high standards even the smallest debts. Think about, even the, think about that same friend. Think about even the smallest things that they've done. The slightest of slights. You can't let it go. It sticks with you. You may forget it later, but in order to forget about it, think about it, you, have, you hold on to it for a little while. It hurts you. So you have two options. You can either hurt them back, right? Or you can forgive them. So when you choose to hurt them, what happens? You're going to either, A, you're going to yell at them, or you're going to be very direct, or you're going to completely ignore them, neglect them. You're going to hurt them back somehow. Whatever is going to be greater, proportional to the amount of debt that they owe you. You can punish them. You can make them suffer. Or you can also make them make it up to you. Because as they do that, as you yell as you hurt them back, as you ignore them or neglect them or withdraw from them, as you punish them, as you make them suffer, as you make them make it up to you, over time, as you watch them doing that, the debt starts to get paid off. And as the debt starts to get paid off, at some point you say, enough, I'm satisfied. You've done, you've you've proven in in a sense, you've paid back the debt. Now, we don't say it that way. We, we use a lot of other language. But essentially, that's what's going on. Existentially, that's what's going on. So they owe you a debt. You hurt them. They're the ones that are paying, essentially. They're paying that debt. Now, when you do that, the Bible says, when you do that, what happens is um, it's going to start to change you. That burden may go away, but it starts to embitter you. And time after time, if that's the way you resolve problems, the anger, the bitterness, the, the entitlement, the sense of everyone owes me because everyone's wronged me starts to set in. God starts to owe you. That starts to set in. It's going to embitter you. It changes you. It transforms you. It turns you into somebody who was once just angry about something to an angry person. That's what happens. Now, the other option is, on the other hand, you can forgive. But what is forgiveness? Here's what forgiveness really is is it just an act? It's not just an act. Here's what it means. Every time you want to hurt that somebody, you don't hurt that person. Every time you want to hurt their reputation, every time you want to gossip, you want to bring somebody in, you know, in the guise of, hey, we're close, I'm telling you something to protect you, you want to gossip about that person, You, you don't do that. Now, every time you want to exact justice, you don't do that. When you do that, number one, the Bible says when you do that, the anger that you have actually slowly starts to die away. And what happens is you become more broken, you become softer, you become humbler. You actually become more teachable as a person. I can tell somebody is not a forgiving person when I see that they're not very teachable. They act like they know a lot all the time. I see that a lot. What happens is, on one hand, your heart goes bad if you don't forgive. But if you forgive, the anger starts to die down. You become humbler, more compassionate. But it's very costly. You know why? You're the one that's paying. They're hurting you twice, in a sense. One, they hurt you. You want to pay them back with, to the proportional amount of the debt that they owe you. But instead, what happens is, in your forgiveness, you're hurt again. You are paying the cost. Somebody's got to pay. I'm going to make it even more simple. Very graphic, very simple. Let's say somebody rapes your child and murders her or her. If the judge sits there and says, well, you know, I mean, he feels pretty bad about it. Let's let him go. I mean, you're a loving person, right? Let's let him go. How do you feel? Can you do that? Because then the child pays. Then you're paying. Then all the society's paying. That's what's happening. Somebody has to pay. At the end of of our, you know, the stories of any postmodern philosopher, if you read any postmodern philosophy, starting from Nietzsche all the way up, they will tell you that in the end, at the end, because we're just really a conglomeration of molecules and atoms, there's no such thing as morality, there's no such thing as law. At the end, there's only evil. Evil wins. Injustice will win. Read any postmodern philosopher, they'll tell you that. Injustice wins in the end. But if that's the case, then society pays. Somebody has to pay. Everybody has to pay. Bear that cost. If we can't avoid the sense of injustice in our lives, how much more is God, whom we are created in his image, if we can't deal with the injustice, how much more the case with God at a cosmic level? Abraham knew this. When God is calling his debts in, Abraham understood. Abraham knew that God created us. God stained us. So we owe him. We need to depend on him completely, but we don't depend on him completely. And because we don't, God is now calling his debts in. Isaac must be sacrificed. But at that last minute in Genesis chapter 22, what happens? Abraham is about to sacrifice his son. The angel of the Lord says, Stop! He says, Abraham, stop. Do not sacrifice Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 22, there's no lamb. Abraham's hoping that there will be a lamb. There's no lamb. Isaac is asking, where is the lamb? There's no lamb. But instead, there's this ram. There's this little ram that's caught in the thicket. And what what Abraham does, he pulls this ram, he sacrifices this little ram as a kind of substitute for the lamb. It is a provision for the lamb. Now we're going to fast forward to this passage to Moses. God says, tonight, I'm calling my debts in. Every firstborn will die your only hope a lamb that's what's happening here very very clear in the text exodus chapter 12 verse 22 god says to israel after put the blood on the door not one of you shall go out of the house not one of you shall go out of the house why he's saying that the destroyer is not just coming for egyptians He's not just coming for the Egyptians. Yes, Israel, the Israelites were oppressed. Yes, the Israelites worship God. Yes, God sees their misery. Yes, God has compassion on the Israelites. But based on God's law, based on his design, the Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. He says, "Ah, the destroyer is going to come. Your only hope is a lamb. Everyone deserves to to die. See what that means? See what that means? God doesn't say, you know, you're good. The Israelites are bad. Uh, The Egyptians are bad, so I'm going to kill the Egyptians. That's not what he says. He says, you know what? I I like the way you guys worship, but the Egyptians, they worship all these other gods. I'm going to kill the Egyptians. That's not what he says. What he says is you, even at your best, is not enough. Your only hope is something outside of you that must be sacrificed, a lamb, in weakness and helplessness, a victim. An innocent victim must be, an unblemished innocent victim must be slain must be killed the blood must be spilled all over the door so that i know you are covered that's what god is saying that's what he says that's your only hope this lamb now what he's really saying is because he says i don't want anybody to go outside of the house when your doorpost is covered with blood everyone's got to stay inside he's saying everybody is liable your only hope of covering is this blood If you go out there because you're confident in your abilities, if you're confident in your moral record, if you're because you're a good son or a good daughter, I do my best in that area of my life. If you're confident in your race or in your pedigree or in your doctrines, none of these things are going to help, he says. None of these things are going to help. What is your hope? What is your hope? In every house, something died that day. Either the firstborn dies or the lamb dies, but something will die that day. Either your son is going to get what this family deserves, or the lamb will be a substitute and will get what this family deserves. If you're sitting at dinner that night, you're sitting around this table, and you have this lamb that's been cut up for the family to eat. You sitting around that table, what do you see? You know that the only reason why I will be rescued tonight is because of what I'm consuming here. The only reason why I'm saved tonight is because this lamb, this innocent lamb was not. The only reason why I am not dead tonight is because this lamb died. The only reason why I will not be consumed tonight is because this lamb was consumed. The only reason why my blood will not be spilt is because this lamb's blood was spilled to cover over me. And yet even that was temporary. Even that was provisional. Even that was temporary. Because God says, even though I will deliver you tonight, you still owe a debt of sin. This is just a temporary provision of grace. You still owe me a debt of sin. You need a deeper rescue than the one you're going to get tonight. You need another rescue. You need another lamb. You need a greater lamb because your sin is greater. Your debt is bigger. Your problems are greater in magnitude. You have a greater bondage. And it's a spiritual one. And I will one day call it in. You still owe. Centuries later, Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. What is he doing? He celebrates the Passover. He calls his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal. Now it's very customary during these meals. You kind of see this in the directions that we read and as you read in the directions about the Passover, going forward in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and on, Numbers, Exodus was used as a guide. This, the head of the house, the head of the family would get up and he would deliver instructions about the meal reminders about the meal he would teach about this passover meal to those who were about to eat it but this time around when jesus stands in front of his disciples two things took place that would completely shock his disciples around him anybody around him that day first the head the presider would say this is the bread of our affliction our ancestors they suffered in the wilderness They suffered in slavery. They suffered so that we could be free. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, this is the bread of our affliction. You know what he says? He says this. He says, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction that I will suffer for my people for your sins. That's what he says. That's one of the first things. It would have shocked, completely shocked the people in his day. Now, the second thing is this. There were three things at the Passover meal. In every Passover meal, there were three things. You had the unleavened bread, which Jesus broke. You had the unleavened bread. You had the wine, which would be poured out and shared. And then you would have a lamb to, to celebrate this Passover meal. The centerpiece was the lamb. But in this Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples, yes, there was the bread, he said, it was blood broken for you. Yes, he says, this wine is my blood. You will drink it. As it's being poured out, my blood is being spilt for you. But there is no lamb. There is no lamb. The centerpiece of this meal, I mean, what kind of Passover meal is this? You can't have a Passover meal without the lamb. But they missed it. Ah, but they missed it because Jesus was at the table. The lamb was at the table. You see, the representative lamb was moved aside. It was removed from the meal because the ultimate lamb, the ultimate man, Jesus Christ is here is saying, I, tonight I am the lamb. I am the real lamb tonight. My death, this is the night he was being betrayed, my death, my sacrifice, my blood, my body will be broken for you. My blood will be poured out for you. You see, Jesus is saying that his death and his sacrifice are the centerpiece of the Passover, to which all the Bible points. He says, tonight I'm giving you the ultimate rescue, the ultimate salvation that even Moses himself looked forward to. That would have been an amazing admission, an amazing teaching here. He says, I will remove your sin debt. That debt that God will call in, I will remove that once and for all. Take me in. Consume this. Consume me. See me consumed. Digest that truth into your souls. Now, how do you do that? That's the third point. How do you do that? How do you take it in? How do you digest this truth? How do you apply it? You see, in the Old Testament laws, you observed a lamb and a goat. The lamb was sacrificed at the Passover meal. And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, you had the high priest one time a year. He would call for two goats one goat he would sacrifice, but the second goat he would symbolically, representatively, he would, again, transfer the sins of all the families of Israel, all the people, representatively, onto the head of a goat. And then he would take it to the city, out to the gates of the city and cast that goat out to live and basically live on its own and die, be cast outside of the city to be dead to his people once and for all. Once a year, the high priest would do that. The lamb was sacrificed as a representative sacrifice for the sin debt at Passover, and the goat represented the sins of the people being taken away. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist, in his encounter with Jesus Christ, his first time meeting Jesus Christ, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, This, I behold, is the lamb who will be sacrificed, This, I behold, is the scapegoat who will take our sins away. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist got it. He realized the lamb, the goat, they were just representative. They were just symbolic. They were just provisional. Until the true goat would come. Until the true lamb would come. Through Abraham, we saw that we see our sin as a debt that has to be paid. And that the provision, God will provide the lamb. The provision would come from God. See this ram? It says in Genesis chapter 22, this ram that was caught in the thicket. Abraham found this ram that was caught in the thicket and he sacrificed that ram. It was just a provision, a substitute for that lamb because the lamb will come. That word thicket in the Old Testament, that word thicket in Hebrew is the word a Very, very particular word to mean tree. It was always used in reference to the tree of judgment. It's all the way into the New Testament, we see the word cross. It was the wood of judgment. What's going on here is this. Firstborns were not spared in, in Exodus. They were not spared from sin because of some animal, right? I mean, they, were, they, were, they, they weren't spared because of this animal. They were spared because God would sacrifice his only firstborn. Jesus Christ is the lamb. The lamb is the ultimate provision. Jesus Christ is the ultimate scapegoat crucified outside of the city, left out of the city for dead. And Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have the ultimate salvation, the ultimate rescue, the ultimate redemption from our sins. Redemption means what? When you redeem something, it's what? You pay. The ultimate payment. God spared Abraham's son because when he stopped Abraham, what he was really saying was this. One day, I will walk up a mountain. I will walk up Calvary with my son. He will be placed on the ultimate wood of judgment. And no one there is going to say, stop. No one's going to say, stop. I will proceed and I will leave him for dead outside of the city I will reject and abandon my son so that he will pay the debt. I will collect my debt in full, and Jesus Christ will pay it in full. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the love of God. On the cross, when the most perfect, holy Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who paid for the sin debt? It was Jesus. Jesus paid the sin debt. Who paid for the sin debt? It was God, his Father, sacrificing his son to pay the sin debt. Jesus died at twilight. You know why? Because the lamb was always slain at twilight. It was a supper meal. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. What he's saying is, Think on this Lamb of God. Reflect on the Lamb of God. Own it. Consume it. Realize it. Be amazed by it. Understand it. Know it. Grasp it. Do you? Do you? What else are you beholding if you're not beholding the Lamb of God? What else do we behold? Oh, we behold so many other things. Friends, we behold so many other things as our rescue. We look to marriage as our rescue. That's why we need to get married. That's what we say, right? Oh, I need to get married because if you don't, you don't feel rescued. You don't feel like you have a sense of worth or a sense of life without that. Oh, we look for our careers. We look to our careers as a rescue. Because if I have that career, if I have that job, if I get that promotion, if my coworkers look at me as a respectable, reputable person, then I have this sense of worth. It's our salvation. In our postmodern era, it's our salvation. It's our salvation for women in particular because women are rising faster than any other time, any other era, which means it's a danger. Why? Because we're looking to these things as our lamb. We get sacrificed. Don't you get it? When we do that, we're the ones that get sacrificed. You're the one that's sacrificing your body and your soul. It's corroding into oblivion, into disintegration, into darkness. Why? Your blood is being spilt. You're the one that's being sacrificed. If you're putting your life into your husband, into your wife, into your spouse, if you're putting your wife life into your ki- chi- children, into your kids, what are you doing? Your blood is being sacrificed. Your life is being sacrificed. You're saying, this is what gives me a sense of worth. Worth. And so what we do is we coddle our children and we're following our children around and we can't do it if our children, God help them, if they get hurt, it devastates us, it hurts us. If the thing that we love the most gets blocked, we get angry. If it gets threatened, we get so anxious and scared. And if we lose it, what happens? Oh my goodness. If we lose it, we are in despair, Our despair. More than your typical morning, we have lost our lives and our souls. Folks, Jesus Christ John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. You don't have to sacrifice yourself anymore. The Lamb was sacrificed in your place. The work was finished. It was done in full, ultimately, once and for all. Salvation and life. Salvation is not just an event. If some of you came to the Lord because you prayed some prayer when you were a child, it's not just an event. It is a lifelong process of sanctification as well of being saved over and over and over again, not that you lose your salvation, but that you become recreated, renewed daily into the image of God, away from the chaos, away from the corrosion, away from the darkness, away from the plague of life. Do you behold? Do you see it? How do you apply it? I'll end with this. You've got to own the truth first. Do you own the truth that you owe a sin debt to God. You owe a sin debt, and that debt has to be paid. One day God is going to call his debts in. You think you own your life? You think you can redeem your life? You're still paying, you're still, you think you're the lamb. And you're going to sacrifice your body and your soul to do that. Jesus didn't come just to improve your life. Jesus didn't come just to be a religious leader. Jesus didn't come just to be a teacher, even though he was a great teacher, a great leader. He came to be the lamb. He came to be your substitute. He came to be your sacrifice. Do you see that? Can you take that in? Can you own that truth? Listen, if you don't believe that Jesus had to die for you, that you believe that you know, God is just a God of all love and he, he doesn't have any wrath, then you're not really thinking I say this several times, probably uh, quite a few times I've said this. But if you think about the people that you love the most, they're the ones that you get angry at the most. You know why? I probably just say it in different ways every time. But think about anybody you love. You get most angry at the people you love the most. Wrath happens because of love. You can't, you love, if you truly love somebody, oh, there's anger at times. There's wrath at times. The wrath is there because the love is there. Nothing brings out greater anger than the sin of people we love. Because there's love, there's wrath. That's why we know God loves. He is a wrathful God because he is a loving God and he sent a provision. God's own firstborn. Every time you look at the cross, you behold. Will you think? Will you own that? You have wronged God and your neighbor. That debt must be paid, and it was paid. So you have to own the truth that you owe a sin debt, and it is specific. You know how you know you're owning the sin debt? When somebody calls you out, even on the slightest things, do you get defensive? Because if you get defensive, you don't own the sin debt. You don't think you're that bad. Yes, we can be that bad. And our souls continue to corrode. corrode it gets worse. Second, do you believe that God paid the debt through his firstborn son, his only son? He paid the price of that sin debt. And so we have assurance of two things. One, evil will die. One day, injustice will end. That brings meaning to our suffering. One day, it will end. Secondly, it's the assurance that we have love. God did not withhold his wrath on his son but he is just. He will not make you pay again for something that you've done. Do you understand that? It was already paid. God will not make you pay twice for the same sin because he's just. And because he poured out that wrath on his son, he can pour out his love on you, his children, all because of his love. Do you see that? This is the only kind of God that can shape you. This is the only kind of God that can change you. This is the only kind of God that can transform you and renew you. As we come to the table, the table is an opportunity for us to be able to literally take in a meal. God gave us more than a symbol. God gave us a representative meal that we can touch, smell, taste, take in. He's saying, I want you, all of you, to take it in. And not just remember, I want you to digest it. If you eat food, and you don't digest it, it has no effect. I want you to take it in today. Let it have effect. Will you do that today? Palm Sunday is about the humble king who rode into Jerusalem and to sacrifice. That's why he's not just a king. That's why we see him as our loving king, our redeeming king. He paid the price, and he left this for us, to remember he didn't give us just a set of rules although he did give us rules he gave us a meal that we can share together abiding in him to remember will you digest these truths take it in let's pray